This episode is brought to you by Lindsay Lohan's new Christmas movie, The Queen is Back. Welcome back, everybody, to My Faith, Your Chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm Beck. We are so excited to be back with more interviews for the show. We've got some exciting new episodes planned, so be sure to stay tuned. With that, here's our show. Well, hello, everybody. We are very, very excited to introduce you all to a really cool chemical engineer. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Yeah. Great to be here, y'all. My name is Austin Graham. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm currently a postdoc uh, at UC San Francisco, um, but I started with uh, my undergraduate career in chemical engineering at UC Santa Barbara, uh, where I had the time of my life uh, living, living (laughs) on the beach. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I did research with uh, in Patrick Doherty's lab there, sort of in the biotech realm, um, and that sort of got me interested in in biology generally and, and how we can use chemical principles to kind of program biology. Um, I then went to or moved to University of Texas at Austin uh, to pursue my PhD in chemical engineering, uh, where I worked with uh, Dr. Keith Kites uh, in the field of living materials. And so I took a lot of what I've learned in sort of programming biology, um, but moved that into sort of controlling materials and biomaterials, uh, where we're sort of investigating the relationships between, uh, cells and their surrounding environments. Um, and we can sort of program in a dynamic way, working in both directions. How can materials program the cells? How can cells program material properties? Um, and sort of just taking a, a, a different sort of material science frame of mind into how we think about cells and tissues. Um, yeah, and then I uh, moved to UCSF just last year, um, and I'm, I'm having a having a really great time here. Awesome. Cool. Well, well, yeah, as we said, we're really excited to have you on uh, the podcast today. Um, so I think that you might be the first chemical engineer that we've had on the podcast. I'm mm-hmm. um, sorry if anybody has been on our podcast and they identify as a chemical engineer, but we think that you're the first. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in chemical engineering research and kind of what chemical engineering research looks like in general for those of us who are maybe not as experienced with that field? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm honored if that is the case to be uh, <laughs> the first chemical engineer uh, to represent. Um, to be honest, like the way I, I got into chemical engineering uh, was a little, I guess, sort of lucky at maybe haphazard would be <laughs> another word to use. I, I actually applied to most universities as a political science major, um, which oh. was interesting. And and like through the whole application cycle and, and after admittance and everything was policy major and I was choosing between a couple schools and kind of was like, ah, you know what, actually I want to do chemical engineering, you know, just like a direct line from poli sci to chemi. That makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> but in actuality, I just really, I, I loved, I've always loved chemistry and I was, you know, not afraid of math, I guess. So it kind of made sense to, to incorporate the engineering in there to me, at least at first. Yeah. And so I was talking to some schools and UCSB was like, yeah, sure. Come be a, a chemical engineer. And so that was, you know, a huge part of the decision for me. Um, to me, sort of the way that I view, at least at the undergraduate level, like chemistry and chemical engineering uh, to be differentiated from one another is I, I see chemical engineering as incorporating a lot more of the sort of scale up and dynamics of chemical processes and sort of how can we take what we know about chemistry and maybe 
apply it into a situation where now we need to take this, like, instead of focusing on the minutia of reaction, how do we focus on taking that reaction into like really large volumes or scaling? Um, and so I think a lot of the, the sort of some of the fundamental tenets of chemical engineering include the sort of sort of transport phenomena. So you're like mass and heat um, and fluid transfer. Um, reaction kinetics, um, which not only involves sort of what you would sort of learn in maybe a P-chem class or a gem-chem class about um, the kinetics of a specific reaction, but then how do you also scale those up? Um, and then the third one is thermodynamics, which again, you may, uh, you'll learn a bit in, in some chemistry courses, but I think just the angle is in, in a chemical engineering course might be a little bit different because you might be focused on um, more manufacturing or scaling. What I like about chemical engineering, um, and I, I think this applies at the research level too, is that it's incredibly broad. So I think traditionally chemical engineering was very focused in areas like petroleum and, you know, maybe semiconductors and, and that's still, you know, those are still huge parts of chemical engineering. But I think if you look across chemical engineering departments now, there's a, a huge sort of diversity of, of research focuses. And so you'll have groups that are are doing, you know, theory, groups who are doing numerical and computational stuff, um, groups that are doing biology, groups that are doing synthetic chemistry. So I, I, that's sort of what I like about it. I think it's really broad. And then, of course, you know, as you get to the research level, as you all understand, those lines all blur. So yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I am a chemical engineer by training, but I, if, if, if there's anything you picked up from sort of my, the intro, I've, I've, I've touched everything from material science to biology to, you know, now I'm doing like cell biology work. So it's kind of, it's been all over the map, but I think chemical engineering was a great foundation for that because um, it's sort of made me feel comfortable expanding and being broad in my interests. Yeah, that's really cool. It, it, it's really cool how, like, like you just said, like how broad, how applicable it can be um, in different areas of research. I, so I did a, a internship this past summer at a pharmaceutical company. And so like, I don't want to spread misinformation, but I think, you know, when, <laughs> when uh, <laughs> I was working in the process chemistry group, and so I always mm -hmm. thought, you know, big processes like these very large scale reactions, they are the process chemists who do that. But actually there's more engineers who do that rather than the process chemists. So it's like a lot of engineering goes involved. And like you just said, like the scale ups and all like, you know, troubleshooting, how did you go from like a few grams reaction to kilograms or even more? That's a lot of engineering there. And Absolutely. So that's really cool. <laughs> well, and that's what I was just going to say is I think like I, I, the, the, the boundaries and definitions of like what your major was and stuff are like valuable in some contexts, but I think ultimately like working in teams is mm -hmm. what's important. So like, right. I'm sure it was really valuable to have like a traditional chemist on your team as well as to have those engineers. And so, right. yeah, I think it's just the, the diversity and sort of teamwork is what ends up ultimately mm -hmm. being important in my mind. Yeah, definitely. And so going along those lines, you know, you briefly mentioned this, but you completed your undergraduate studies at UCSB, and then you moved to UT Austin for your PhD in chemical engineering. And so can you tell us about your experience in these institutions, you know, specifically as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but, you know, your experience um, overall there? Sure, yeah. So I think, um, especially at, at at UCSB, I definitely, I was sort of late to coming out. I think I feel a little bit on on the cusp of this like generational thing where I feel like most people I talk to who are a few uh, maybe years or grades or whatever you wanna call it, younger than me, um, were a lot earlier in coming into their, their sort of queer journey. And so I was still figuring that all out throughout undergrad. So I was out to like a few friends sort of throughout 
my time there. But I didn't really start coming into like my scientific queer identity um, into grad school. But I do credit uh, some of that journey or like feeling comfortable in that journey to experiences I had at UCSB. Um, there were a few sort of, there was a, a couple uh, professors that, you know, were openly part of the queer community. There was a, a, another undergraduate student sort of in my study slash friend group in chemical engineering. Um, his name is Chris Seif, and he uh, was out and part of like OSTEM and stuff. And I think just sort of seeing how comfortable he was and like accepted by the community more broadly was really eye-opening to me. And so even though at that stage in my life, I wasn't ready to like live fully in that experience, um, there were definitely some formative moments that um, allowed me to step into that role with a lot more confidence when I moved to Austin. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I did. And then at UT, I think another really important part of that um, experience was actually uh, writing my like fellowship statements, um, especially my, my NSF fellowship statement and writing my personal statement um, where I decided to like incorporate my queer identity into that. Um, and it was my first time sort of like putting those things to paper um, and, and putting them in words in a way that I hadn't really thought about my approach to science before that I think was really formative for me. Um, and I, uh, I sort of initially, I feel like fell into science or like what maybe what attracted me to science was this idea that people say this about math all the time, that like math is the same in every language. It's like science sort of feels like this uh, or can feel like maybe it's like a sort of it transcends like culture or geographical or political boundaries. Um, and I think that science really does have that power. And I thought that, you know, in that way, I could sort of like decouple it maybe from my identity. I think that was in some ways a naive take. And I think that our identity uh, actually is like a huge part of how we do science. And that's also been a part of my you know growth throughout my queer experience is like recognizing how those parts of me inform my science and make and are part of what make me a scientist. So it's all been a very uh, kind of meandering journey. But I think having communities like, like ones that you're forming, um, and like OSTEM and stuff, I think, are, are, are helping all of us sort of put these pieces together. Yeah, and I think we will get to this in a second, but this is sort of what led me to want to uh, start the role model program at UT Austin. Um, and so, you know, we can maybe get to that in a second, but that was sort yeah. of the, have, the, the lead up into what made me want to get into this uh, type of stuff. I have yeah, a really- the transitions on Yeah, here, it, so. it's perfect. <laughs> cool. I don't, I don't cool. want to break the transition, but I have a parenthesis <laughs> question, but maybe I can ask it later. Yes. Well, I was going to ask uh, you now. Sure, I, I, yeah, yeah, so, go for it. <laughs> I, how did you decide, maybe this is a naive question, but I know some chemical engineering majors that decide to do their PhD in chemistry instead of chemical engineering. So how did you think or thought about that? You know, like maybe it was it your future career goals or like how did you make that decision of continuing chemical engineering versus chemistry or other, you know, times maybe? Yeah, I think if anything that, that, that tension for me more than existing between chemistry and chemi existed between like bioengineering and chemi just because of what my undergrad research had happened to be and ultimately because of the field I moved into for grad school I'm very happy that I didn't do that but um <laughs> I I had some key conversations with uh my like mentors and and professors in undergrad who sort of reinforced the like gut feeling that I had that chemi is this very broad thing and like you know I'm sure there was some sort of <laughs> bias of like 
oh, that's what we did. This is our department, yeah. so it's better. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I just felt encouraged to stay within uh, within chemical engineering by by my mentors, and I and I, I felt like it had been a good fit for me in undergrad, so I was I was happy to stick with it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I had plenty of friends who went into into other departments. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also know people who went into chemical engineering from chemistry, and I think when you get to the research level, those those borders become much less sort of yeah uh, definitive, and so mm-hmm. it's good to I, I think it's 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 good that people move around, and I think it's you know that's what we that's what we should look for in in our trainees is just diversity of backgrounds as well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. You. I feel like the like the barriers between fields, like as you were saying, just like get so much blurrier as you get older. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in college, it's like very clearly like bio majors, like chem majors, engineering majors, whatever. But then like in grad school, you could be in a lab with like there are labs at Michigan that have like people from like five or six different grad programs like mm-hmm. just all like working in the same research lab so I feel like that's really yeah. cool that's something that like just doing this podcast is like people re- have re- yeah. reached out to us and like oh do, do we count as like chemists does this count <laughs> like we're in like this field I'm, I like, had the same I'm question. like if you like if you though and yeah like the way that we've always like gone about it is like if you identify as a chemist then like and if you identify like somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, then like those are <laughs> the welcome. only two requirements like <laughs> we'll to be on to the you. show. So and I like I feel like it's fun for us too to like get to talk to people from different fields, different like research interests than us, like different experiences, you know, like that. I I, I don't know, like that's the whole point of the podcast yeah. is to like highlight the rich kind of experiences of our community. So I think that's definitely that's, that's yes. really cool. Yes. So um, and yeah, again, awesome very happy to have you on this. here. So yeah. happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so again, perfectly moving into <laughs> your next train of thought. You've like already thought through all these transitions. You're doing our job for us. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so during your time, I was just on a roll, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I I interrupted that, but <laughs> no, no, no. It was great. It was good. So during your time at UT Austin, you uh, formed the Role Model Program. Can you tell us about this initiative and its mission and how it got started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think I sort of started to like, as I started to piece my queer identity into my scientific identity, I I really recognized how crucial it was to me feeling like a part of the scientific community to have done undergraduate research. And uh, my graduate mentor, who I'll give even more of a shout out uh, later in the uh, in the <laughs> uh, role models section, w- it was a huge part in sort of, yeah, me feeling centered in my in my science and my LGBTQ plus identity. And so I wanted to, but as I looked around UT, you know, there weren't, there were, there were undergraduate uh, focused sort of queer organizations within engineering or within science um, in general, but there was, there wasn't an obvious path for sort of connecting graduate students and undergraduate students. And not only from like a, a community forming perspective, but also from a research perspective. And so, yeah, I, I, came up with the idea to start the role model program, which uh, role stands for research opportunities for LGBTQ plus engineers. Uh, So role model program. And, you know, although the engineers portion lends itself to a catchy acronym, the idea was from the beginning to to be broadly STEM inclusive. 
but just because I was coming from an engineering department and I was initially going to start within Kemi only to just keep it sort of small and manageable as sort of an early career grad student. Um, that was the initial idea. Um, yeah, so the the goal of the program was to um, sort of pair an undergraduate with a graduate student mentor for work on a research project, just as like a, you know, a little bit more of a traditional student or undergrad helping someone with their project or they have their own sort of offshoot of a project. Um, but it was also to build communities and have seminars and sort of provide sort of more informal mentor mentee relationships between all queer identifying students um, within science at UT. Um, and so this was all started, this was all sort of starting around, like finally when I was able to get the ball rolling, which took a couple of years to like talk to different departments and try to figure out what this structure would look like. Um, COVID happened like the year, I think we were supposed to start like spring of 2020. Um, so we pivoted a little bit to a virtual format and, and still did some of the more like informal community building and seminars and stuff. Um, and yeah, just sort of postponed the, the research component. Yeah. So I think for me, it was, uh, it's one of those things like that idea is going to stay with me. So the, the program didn't, uh, didn't end up lasting when I left UT. Um, and I think that's something maybe we can talk about in a second, but the, the momentum was definitely, you know, there and like the support the communal support was there from like the trainees from the graduate students and undergrads so I, i'm really excited that it just seems like our community more broadly the science community is like really receptive to these kinds of things um and it just takes you know a lot of institutional support and momentum to get things going yeah so kind of going along with that you you mentioned that since your time at ut the program is unfortunately no longer active so this is not an unusual occurrence as many of right. us who have any sort of experience like working with, especially like graduate led initiatives in our programs and our in our schools. So where initiatives like this kind of basically fizzle out or die out once the like lead student or lead students leave the program. So can you tell us a little bit more about the challenges with finding institutional support for graduate initiatives and um, how these programs could better be supported in the in the future? Yeah, and so I mean, I, I think that's a fantastic question, and and, and exactly to your point, I, I I I don't feel alone in the sense that like I tried to get this thing to to happen, and just with the timing of also you know trying to balance research and classes and TAing and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we were able to at least build some community, at least initially, and I got to meet some incredible undergrads. But yeah, so just to give a little bit of peek behind the curtain of what the process looked like, I one of the initial ideas for the program was um, because, first of all, there's a huge intersection between uh, people who identify as LGBTQ plus and people who come from um, ethnic or socioeconomic disadvantages. And that is like a very prominent barrier to undergraduate research in the first place, which is predominantly volunteer based. So uh, one of the key like cornerstones of the role model program was the, you know, my, my ambition to provide stipends uh, for the undergraduate researchers so that they could be compensated for their work. Um, and that would, you know, hopefully reduce some of those sort of structural barriers uh, to entry for a lot of students. And so that was part of what 
made the startup process so slow is like I was really adamant about trying to get money to make this happen. Um, and so I guess one of the first points I would make about the struggle uh, to get something like this to have institutional momentum is funding. Uh, it would, I mean, there, there, are, I, I see opportunities like this arising more frequently now than I feel like I did five or six years ago, um, where universities will have sort of open grant, internal grant applications for something like this. So it's good to see that that's starting to happen. I didn't see those opportunities initially when I was when I was at. UT. And so I was literally just going from department head to department head within the engineering and science departments kind of being like, hey, like, do you think your department could uh, could maybe front some uh, some funds for this? Um, and, you know, it was met to varying degrees of like enthusiasm. Like I'd say in general, like the, the professors and people I talked to were very enthusiastic. But a lot of the time it was like, I'm just one person. I don't have this sort of like administrative or institutional power to actually hand you money. And so I ended up partnering with the Women in Engineering program, which is an awesome initiative at UT Austin that already has like a really established infrastructure and administration. Um, and they do, they have this program called the GLUE program, which is graduates linked with undergraduates uh, in engineering. And so they sort of had this structure for like matching mentee, mentors and mentees um, and so my goal was to sort of partner with them for a lot of the sort of structural and administrative stuff. So I think sort of one of the second, uh, things I'd say about it is like doing things in teams so much better. <laughs> I was doing it by myself for a long time. So if you have a similar and like you two are such a lovely example of this, like, doing something together, you can go so much farther. And like the fact that, you know, I like came across your podcast on Twitter years ago and y'all are still going strong is such a great testament to that. Um, yeah. And so if you can get support from another grad student or another postdoc or like someone, you know, another trainee or uh, even <laughs> potentially sometimes even with someone with even more leverage, like a PI uh, can be really awesome. Um, so I think things are moving in the right direction. Like I think there are both institutional shifts and cultural shifts like within the community that want to support these initiatives more. Um, and and advisors, um, I think for the most part are recognizing that this is also an important part of our training, not, you know, it augments the research, um, even if it's not directly contributing to research. So, yeah, I think things are, are moving in the right direction. It's more just about trying to get the sort of support network set up early and doing things in teams. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, and I, I think that it, it, it like brings up a lot of things for me, mainly thinking about like how unpaid labor works in graduate school um, mm -hmm. and how a lot of times like departments and programs and even like, you know, administrators and whatever will support things like up to the point where like they actually have to start like getting there's, money or yeah, like doing like, more, like right. yeah like actually like supporting with like resources and like financial mm -hmm. resources and things like that mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen a lot like now that Geraldo and I are fourth years like we've been in the game for a little while now I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of stuff like I it's just so interesting that like the support and enthusiasm is there Mm -hmm. Like only if it like doesn't require, require anything much. like too substantial, like from yeah. a department, like from yeah. 
the university from, you know, whatever. And like, mm -hmm. I mean, Geraldo and I have been doing this for four years. We don't get paid for this. Like we just do this like, right. on top of, as you're like, as you're saying, graduate school, like juggling all of Research. this, mm -hmm. all of these things, it's really difficult. It's made a little bit easier because we do it together. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, we didn't start this to make money. So it's like fine to a certain extent, but it's just kind of like thinking about how, a lot of like this unpaid labor is just like expected, especially of like students from minoritized backgrounds and mm -hmm. minoritized communities. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're just expected to like do it and do it with mm -hmm. enthusiasm and like not expect money basically yeah. out of like any of right. it. You probably won't get it. Yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, that, that's just kind of what, what I was thinking about like as you were going through that and it, it's just so effed up that that's like- It how really is, is, yeah. It's, like, it's so true, though, like the amount of sort of um, safety net and inertia is needed to like be able to survive as an adult, but also on a grad student stipend with the amount of work mm -hmm. that you're putting in um, and then extending that to a postdoc when a lot of people are moving into like family, the age where they're like starting families. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it's a very these are very poignant topics uh, right yeah. now given that the uh, uc system that i'm a part of is currently on strike, on strike. oh my yeah. gosh yeah oh my strike. gosh i totally yeah. forgot that you are i mean i guess yeah. we'll talk a little bit about yeah yeah we'll talk a little bit yeah. about your post oh my god that's like really current event news that we've should yeah. have factored into our questions we can talk a little bit about that too no um, that's okay but... i mean I'll, i'm ha i'm happy to talk a little bit about <laughs> it but i you know I, i'm not going to pretend to be uh you know super well versed enough sure, to yeah, yeah. uh give really in-depth analysis but yeah it's 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 been a really interesting time and i'm i'm so happy that there are people like fighting for definitely. for these values but yeah we should talk about that yeah, yeah definitely. And, and before before we we again i'm cutting stuff before we move into your postdoc I, you mentioned something earlier, which I really, really like. I, I want to echo it is that the the stipend for undergraduate researchers that is something very, very important because if I like, I I, I got a, a fellowship as an undergraduate and got some stipend out of it, and without that fellowship, I wouldn't have been able to do research because I needed you know to work to pay for my college, and probably without mm -hmm. that, I probably wouldn't be doing my PhD right now because I wouldn't have the experience or the interest in research as much as I I did when I was with research side. There's a lot of things there that that need to be, you know, looked up at or work on. But yeah, mm -hmm. there's there's so much space. To, so is anyone listening? One, you know, have any ideas or you know initiatives or stuff like that? So it, it's really important and needed right now. Yeah, and the the you you made such a great point about the sort of how early that momentum has to start. Mm -hmm. Like you have to do undergraduate research to get into grad school, and mm -hmm. like. I didn't, I, my family is not, uh, like scientific or research and I didn't even mm -hmm. know what undergraduate research was. And it was one of those things where I was like, huh, it seems like the like high achieving students around me are all doing undergraduate research. Like maybe I should like check out what that is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the PI I ended up doing undergraduate research with was like, Hey, you should apply for this like fellowship because I was like working a restaurant job at the time. And, yeah. and, and yeah, if he hadn't like shown me that opportunity, um and i and you know i hadn't been lucky enough to get it it's like who knows how any yeah. of this could have been possible so yeah it's a great point definitely yeah yeah 
Okay, so coming back down to, <laughs> to uh, your postdoc, you're now a postdoc um, in the Gardner Lab, right, at UCSF, and also in the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Um, can you tell us about the process of, you know, finding slash applying into this postdoctoral position, your experience, and you, this is like a joint sort of like co-mentor, co-advise situation. Between yeah, correct. The and and the, the Biohub. So can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, of course. So um, for my postdoc, I was really interested in taking some of the concepts that I was thinking about in grad school with sort of this like dynamic interplay between cells and their environment and how we can sort of think of multicellular communities. You know, I was working with bacteria at the time in sort of synthetic polymer matrices. And it's like, wow, this looks a lot like a tissue. <laughs> it's like, it, uh, like tissues and like the human body is sort of like the original living material in my mind and sort of has all these properties that we think about um, in terms of like our the ability of materials to behave dynamically and respond to their environment. Um, and so I thought that was that was something that interested me in terms of like a thread to sort of follow um, and an interesting way to stay within like the research communities that I was interested in, um, but also like really diversify my, my research experience. Um, again, coming back to sort of like the broadness of, of not only chemical engineering, but like my interests in, in science. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I was familiar with Zeb Gartner and his lab's work. Um, and so I just sort of, you know, did a, a forgetting the phrase for it now, but I just, oh, cold, I just like cold emailed him basically like my CV and the cover letter that was like, hey, like I like your work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I did this to, you know, quite a few labs, but I was, I was lucky enough to hear back from Zev uh, and I interviewed with this group and I, I had a really awesome time. And so, yeah, I, and was very happy to move to San Francisco. I'm from California. I have a, I have a lot of friends uh, from undergrad who live here. So that was a great, great element of it as well. Yeah. And so I joined his lab uh, about a year ago. Um, and then we were sort of in the top, like as one of my, you know, projects that I was sort of initiating when I started, we were talking to this group at the Biohub. Uh, that's the bioengineering platform uh, that's run by uh, Rafael Gomez Schilberg. And so we were in talks with them and, and I just sort of, you know, digging around for fellowships as postdocs do. I noticed that uh, the the Biohub had a collaborative postdoc fellowship program between some of the Bay Area universities and, and themselves. And you have to sort of propose a project that is collaborative between both one of the universities and a, a group or platform leader at the Biohub. And so, yeah, with, with, uh, Zev and Raphael's help, I put an application together and we proposed a project um, and I was lucky enough to to get funded. So now it's, yeah, I, I am about, you know, depending on the week between 50-50 to like 80-20% uh, of my time is split between UCSF and the Biohub. And so the uh, Raphael's group are our bioengineering platform, as I, as I mentioned, and so they're experts in sort of like uh, device engineering and manufacturing and sort of some of the uh, more mechanical and what we think of as traditional like building engineering elements. Um, and then a lot of the cell and tissue biology uh, Zev's group um, are experts in. And so uh, my project is in developing sort of bioprinting uh, methods to move cell biology into the high throughput realm. 
Um, and so I work predominantly with uh, gut organoids, uh, which are essentially organ-like cellular structures um, that recapture a lot of the similar behaviors of a traditional organ, but they're a lot more easy to engineer. Um, and so it's a uh, sort of meshing a lot of the, the different experiences I've had, I guess, sort of between, you know, thinking about the extracellular matrix as like a polymer network um, and thinking of cells as these sort of like programmable uh, autonomous things that control their surrounding environment. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of it was sort of just identifying the the people around me and the things that I was interested in and proposing a project and being lucky enough that it got funded. But yeah, that's sort of how that all started. That was really so cool. cool. Yeah. I I have never heard of like, a, I mean, obviously you hear like postdoc fellowships from like government organizations like NSF, NIH, whatever, but I've never heard of like a fellowship and like, like direct collaboration with like, like biohub which is like industry right like a like a yeah yeah they're industry. like a, they're a private uh research organization that sort of were founded uh as as the name implies as like a hub between mm -hmm. all the bay area research institutions um and yeah funded by the the chan zuckerberg foundation so uh it's yeah. they're they're really awesome and do some incredible research um and yeah they're they're really awesome staple to like Bay Area biotech research. Mm -hmm. That's so, so cool. So are you the only one on your project then? Like if you if you like propose the project, you're funded from this biohub, like how does that work? Like do you still have like a team that you get to work with, especially like the time that you spend at Biohub or how does that work? Yeah, I, I think of myself um, sort of as like a, a glue between the two. Um, and so I'm, you know, driving this project um, and and sort of, you know, making a lot of the research decisions, but with full support from both labs. Um, and so depending on which aspect of the project I'm sort of trying to optimize or work within, you know, there are teams on both sides that I can sort of talk to and, and get help from. Yeah, the, the bioengineering group at the Biohub is like a full team that has like, you know, dedicated sort of engineers and, and people who are sort of working there 24-7 on all their instruments, not 24-7, but they actually have a very healthy work culture. <laughs> <laughs> they have robots and, and stuff, yeah, like fancy, just... fancy machines that, that work 24-7, but yes. not the people, not the people. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I have a lot of support on both sides, but I am sort of driving, you know, an independent project with, with mm -hmm. a lot of input and support. Um, That's so yeah, awesome. it's, it's a, That's really cool. it's a pretty cool, unique opportunity. And I'm really, really excited that, uh, you know, they, they believed in me and gave me mm -hmm. that opportunity. That's amazing. Well, congrats. I know, you know, we're, we're a year late, but congrats. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually just found out about this a couple months ago. So oh, really? Oh, okay. Awesome. Then. okay. So very, so very congrats. timely. Like, very extra special yeah. congrats. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So we would love to, since it's kind of like in current news, we would love to talk a little bit about the UC strike. 
Um, I know sure. a little bit about it just from what I've seen on Twitter in the last couple of days, because it's like a pretty new thing, I guess, like for our mm-hmm. listeners who are unfamiliar, um, from my understanding, the graduate union for the entire UC system, the University of California system, has gone on strike. It's the largest, I believe, maybe the largest graduate strike, but maybe... I don't want to misspeak. So, but it, it's, a very, it's a very academic large a- academic. Strike. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, largest academic researcher strike that's happening right now. I don't know, like, how much you know about it or how much you're comfortable speaking about it, but I would love to hear a little bit about it from you, and especially the unique position that you're in as a postdoc versus a graduate student. And um, I remember, like, when Michigan, when the Michigan Graduate Union went on strike. That was in, in 2020, that was like a little bit of a kind of a thing to figure out is like, how do other people who aren't necessarily graduate students like still support um, the yeah. strike? But yeah, anyway, I'd love to love to talk that, about that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So so I think maybe what's slightly different from the mission case, I don't know all, all the facts there, but the postdocs are also unionized uh, here at the UC system oh. and have been for a long time. I think the graduate students actually at, I know it at UCSF, but this might be UC system wide, um, unionized pretty recently. But yeah, this is this strike is sort of pan academic researcher um, oh. at all levels. Oh, that's awesome! That is so yeah. Cool. Which is why yeah, which is why the numbers are so huge. And so yeah. um, we're striking uh, because of uh, unfair labor practices between by the UC uh, overall, and you know some of the key demands involve uh, raises for all academic workers that are matching the the rate of inflation. Um, as well as a lot of family, like family planning and family care benefits, which are currently completely lacking in our in our benefit system, and also some measures on sort of anti-bullying and structural inequities that uh, exist at the sort of university level. And so, yeah, it's been it's been interesting. We we held a strike authorization vote a few weeks ago that that passed with astounding numbers it was like you know in the 96 to 7 percent voted to authorize the strike and uh, yeah the strike started on monday so it's a very it's it feels like a very poignant time for this to be happening with like inflation and other things going on and sort of uh, pertinent to the conversations we were just having like some of the structural barriers that we face as academic researchers, um, especially those who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Like it's 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 a really hard path to choose if you have to support yourself or support a family fully based on uh, the work that you do as an academic. So yeah, it feels like a, a really poignant time. I guess is is the phrase that I would use. Yeah. So I, I we get updates on sort of the progression of negotiation every couple of days or so, or every, you know, once a day, roughly. Um, so yeah, we'll see. It's, I mean, we know that the, that the, the union at least is willing to be in constant negotiation with the UC system. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's unclear exactly how long this is going to last, but uh, we have the momentum to, to write it out as long as we need to. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, 
we're cheering y'all on yeah. from Michigan and um yeah it wasn't it wasn't too long ago that that we were on strike um mm -hmm. as a graduate union mm -hmm. um and i think it's a really exciting time for the labor you know union movement revival mm -hmm. and whatnot um in our country in general so i think that that is mm -hmm. really exciting um and just just to know that that there are graduate students that they're postdocs undergrads across mm -hmm. the country that are supporting y'all and cheering for y'all and i'm very excited to see uh what comes out of this hopefully yes. very thank you for come out of this yeah, yeah. And thank you thank you for sharing the information too yeah yeah definitely yeah. oh my gosh of course yeah i think you know the the it's it's hard to discount the like effect or like the role of the pandemic in all of this too where mm -hmm. we just saw mm -hmm. like I think a lot also because a lot of us were sort of stuck at home and so you know you were more plugged into the online world but just seeing the people at the top like accrue wealth in this time when the rest mm -hmm. of us were you know not only losing wealth but losing like community and like health physical and mm -hmm. mental it was just yeah I think it's uh there's there are a lot of there are a lot of forces that are sort of playing into the structural inequity and I think this is just like one sort of mm -hmm. microcosm of how people are uh are fed up and looking to to shake things up yeah yeah definitely okay so this might be a little bit of a scary question but what's next after your <laughs> postdoc What's next to you? Yeah. I think I, I read that and sort of said to myself, like, ah, yes, the age-old question. Yeah, I don't know. Do I, get it? Sorry for asking. Do you get you. it in grad school? No, 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 it's fine. I, uh, but you get it in grad school, and every time you just kind of, like, flinch a little bit, and, like, yeah. you know, postdoc doesn't change. Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm really excited to hopefully lead my own research group one day. Um, I mean, at least the way that I envisioned that happening now, it's it's at, you know, a, a research university. I love the mentorship and teaching aspects as well as the research. Like, I, I really feel like someone who has, you know, wants to jump headfirst into all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really exciting prospect. And I have, you know, I feel like I have a lot of energy and thoughts and feelings about like how to like run a cohesive group um, and sort of make sure that my, you know, trainees all feel supported. And so I think that, you know, people who come from communities like the queer community are, are a lot of times just more practiced in sort of creating community for others, you know, cause you have to sort of like find it as you're coming into yourself in, in ways that are maybe not traditional or not as obvious for people who don't come from that same experience. So I'm really excited to, to bring that kind of energy into, into a group of my own. And if it doesn't happen at, at a research university, you know, maybe it happens at, you know, a, a research institution like the Biohub or, you know, some other, you know, even at a company, you know, people still run research groups there. So I'm excited for whatever form that will end up taking. But yeah, right now I'm hoping it's at a university. I also think that something that I'm starting to see more of a little bit, but I think is a conversation that, that we should be having in academia is labs that are co-PI'd. Uh, because of the number of hats that PIs are expected to wear, um, have been expected to wear, but even more so these days, I think like 
splitting those roles or at least sharing them, even if you don't evenly split them between multiple people um, could be a really powerful thing. And I think the most traditional examples we see of that tend to be couples like married couples um, or people in, in partnerships that run a lab together. Um, and that's fine. That's like one uh, way to do that, you know, as long as, you know, that doesn't bleed into other areas of their lab if things aren't going well within their personal life. But I think even co-PI ships between people who are just, you know, colleagues that really see eye to eye about, you know, the research and mentorship and teaching. I think that's an interesting model that we should be exploring. I need to uh, shout out <laughs> that I, I've been having a lot of uh, conversations with a friend of mine that I that I met over the summer. So shout out Aurora for uh, <laughs> for fueling these thoughts. But yeah, nice. hopefully, is, yeah, hopefully leading a research. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting mm -hmm. take on kind of professorship and being a PI yeah. and leading a lab um and yeah I always I've always found it like very strange and like just thinking that it must be so hard to be like the only person that like you know you are running this lab this research lab that is expected to like go on for like decades and decades mm -hmm. as like an academic and you're like doing it all by yourself like you have the obviously the support of like your department and everything but I think that that like goes mm -hmm. back into our conversations about like just teamwork just makes everything mm -hmm. a lot easier yeah. in general it does. It so does. that's yeah that's very interesting I haven't heard that like kind of take on on leading a lab yeah you think about, yeah it's the next big thing I just want to say yeah <laughs> it, it sounds like really good because yeah if you think of big labs it, it, it's a lot of work for one person to manage like 20 students you know or 20 students and postdocs or whatever so it's like mm -hmm. not, not, it would be a nice way to make things a little bit more I don't know enjoy yeah, so if anyone's listening and you know like maybe interested in similar research ideas as me let's talk yeah <laughs> the austin's uh co-pi a collab <laughs> collab yeah um, okay collab. so good that's good yeah <laughs> okay so one of the tried and true questions of this podcast which i'm sure you know it's coming yeah. is who is your so excited. chemistry <laughs> and or science role model and why and you can have more than one okay first of all thank goodness i can have more than one because i have so many <laughs> yes um and i think this go goes back to the like you know people uh, especially in like academic science pis have to wear so many hats so like i feel like i have different role models for like different aspects of, of that career and people who have influenced my career differently. Um, the first one I want to shout out is Joel Bozakowski, who was my graduate student mentor when I was an undergrad. I was like, not sure if like science and research was for me. And he was just the most supportive, coolest guy. Um, and like really showed me, I think I had in my mind this sort of stereotype of like the depressed grad student. And he seemed to have like a pretty rich social life and was you know just an active person but also was like great in the lab and I was like okay like you like there are people like this you can be this like sort of complete person um and so I've sort of carried that with me through that experience with me through my whole career um I also want to shout out uh Dr. Adrian Rosales who is a professor at UT Austin who was not only a collaborator of mine when I was there, but just such a supportive mentor in so many ways. And I feel like really, yeah, made me feel much more complete as a researcher and more confident in 
in my abilities. Um, I also had the opportunity to TA for her. So I got to see some like really awesome teaching uh, in sort of sitting in the front row. Um, and so I will, you know, take those experiences with me, hopefully to my own teaching career. Um, I want to shout out Dr. Trisha Clayton, who is now at Wake Forest, but she was at UT uh, when I was there. Um, and she was so supportive of the role model program. And, you know, we ended up speaking together a little bit about uh, an NSF broadening participation grant um, that ended up being funded that was sort of centered around creating a, a more cohesive queer community at UT. Um, but yeah, Trisha was awesome and so, so supportive. Uh, and I, I wanted to thank her. Yeah. And then of course my, you know, my, my research, my actual PIs, uh, both Keith and Zev, I think are just two of the most like incredible scientists that I've, I've had the pleasure to talk to and work with and very supportive in the sense that uh, they really have given me the space to sort of grow and evolve and fail and fail and fail and then succeed and then fail again. And, and I think like, but never sort of imposing undue pressure and sort of trusting me to like grow and sort of giving me the right guidance when needed. So yeah, I've, I've, I feel like I've been pretty fortunate to uh, be surrounded by and also actively surround myself with sort of scientists who are all great at these different things in their own right. So, yeah, chosen family, you know, you know how it goes. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. so sweet. I love it. We love we love hearing all of that. Um, so now we go to our last question. Where can people follow you on social media if they want to connect with you? You know, for now, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, you know, who knows <laughs> yeah, like, how long that'll last. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so true. Oh, my God. Like, I, I, have, I can't I've even think about Twitter. that. No, Twitter is very... I, <laughs> I know. I know. It's, right it's, kind of, it's hard to go on right now. Um, but I, I'm, I'm at Austin <laughs> J. Graham on Twitter. Um, yeah, but, you know, feel free to reach out. My, mm -hmm. you know, I think my emails are, are on my Google Scholar or on the Gartner Lab website. So I'm around. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Beautiful. Well, LinkedIn. thank you so much for being on the show. And we're honored that you've been listening for all these years. Yeah. I always get so excited whenever I like talk to people who are, I don't know, it's like sometimes it's hard to like think about like people who have who kept up it? with us like yeah. all these years. And so I'm glad that we finally got to have you on. And it was, yeah, no, so thank y'all. Thank you so much. Yeah. This it was, was really awesome. fun. Yeah. You two are fun. You're like celebrities in my mind. <laughs> Thank you. Don't Thank boost you. our egos. Don't yeah, boost don't. our egos. Like okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a great rest of your night, Austin. It was yeah. so good chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Too. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Bye. We hope y'all are staying safe and healthy out there. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC Pot. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios. Bye.